been in the sanctuary here in God's house. We're going to turn one more time to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to land in verses 14 through 22 as we have our last message. Today we have the finale, the last church in our series we've been having for several months. Yeah, we took a little break during Christmas time and Thanksgiving, but for several months we've been talking about and studying and discussing the seven churches of Revelation. And today we come to the very last one, Laodicea or Laodicea, as some people pronounce it. Either way you pronounce it, it's still the last church in our seven of the series we've been having. It is called then, if you will, the lukewarm church. The lukewarm church. The very last of all seven churches is pronounced and called the lukewarm church, which is an appropriate label to even Christianity today. The lukewarm church applies to the Christian church today. Now, the question then that maybe we should be asking, that maybe you're beginning to ponder, is why would I state, why would I even dare to suggest that the label for the modern church today and maybe even thousands of Christians is lukewarm? Why would I suggest that we're lukewarm in society today, in Christianity in general? And the reason I would state that we're lukewarm is because maybe now more than any other time in church history, Christians are taking a passive, like a daisical, non-committal approach, not only to the relationship they have with Lord Jesus Christ, but to life in general. In essence, many people today that claim to be Christians could really take it or leave it. For them, Jesus is not first. I mean, he's somewhere on the list. He's not excluded. But it's just not first for many different people who claim to be Christians. So with that, we might think, well, what then would be first? And it's going to vary by individual. I'm not condemning anyone, not even suggesting that at all, but I'm just noticing the society that seems to be changing compared to years ago. So many different things now are put first over a relationship at times with Jesus. And it's things like, well, yeah, family. That does interfere at times, and sometimes with family over Jesus. If not family, sometimes, maybe embarrassingly, it's sports or entertainment. Career sometimes positions itself over Jesus. And sometimes even various hobbies become more important. So yeah, it seems that today Christianity maybe in general terms, has become a little bit lukewarm for some folks. But rather interestingly is that many scholars then look at Laodicea and how it's labeled as the lukewarm church, and they, they say that's the church then when Jesus begins to send his signal, but he begins to return, that is the church that will be in existence upon that moment, that time. The words of Dr. David Jeremiah says that not only is Laodicea, it's the final church. Yeah, I mentioned Revelation. We mentioned that. He said it's the lukewarm church. Yeah, we mentioned that. But it says best described as the church that will be in existence when Christ returns. It's the church that will be in existence when Christ returns. Now, upon hearing that, I hope that gets your attention. Because if we're not already there, then we are rapidly approaching that day and time when Christianity is lukewarm. 
And people could take it or leave it pertaining to Jesus. Our church today is Laodicea. It is the final church. It is pronounced as lukewarm. Yes, it applies to the church today. And we're going to find then as we begin our reading that Jesus reserves his most harsh, direct criticism and condemnation for this church. The church that best represents modern day is written in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Let us read the text. If you're able to, stand with me as we stand to singly honor the reading of the word. So we read in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Is it the angel of the church in Laodicea write? The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may be clothed yourself, and the shame of your nakedness not, may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. So I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And finally, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come before you today, Lord, concluding our final message pertaining to the seven churches. Lord, today we just pray that we'll open our hearts and begin to receive this message, Lord, that was perhaps meant for the, not just crossroads, Lord, but maybe church in general. Maybe Christianity today needs to hear this message to have a wake-up call to remove itself from lukewarmness into being hot. So I pray, Lord, today that you lead and guide these words will be yours, not mine. And that today, Lord, we receive your message in its entirety. Maybe even laying, change, leave here today, Lord, changed from, from maybe, maybe a position of lukewarmness to a position where we are hot on fire for you. Like the day we accepted you as Lord. Well, thank you in advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you will, as we're starting the message with a few informational facts about Laodicea. And you're going to see again again the map. We've been looking at this map over and over for several consecutive weeks. We have noted how the church, we started with in Ephesus, and we made a clockwise rotation through all the different churches and now coming to the last one of Laodicea. But notice on the map that Laodicea is located in on a road to Colossae about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. That's his location. That's his proximity. That's where it is. We come to our last church. It's Laodicea. But other things notable besides the fact that it's our last church and position of where it is compared to the others is a few other things that's helpful to know about Laodicea. Like, for example, it's a wealthy, affluent city. 
It is strategically located at the intersection of three major trade routes. The city then quickly became a, a banking and, and a trading center known especially for woolen carpets and its clothing. So it's a wealthy, affluent city. But also some things that's helpful to know about Laodicea is the fact that it's got a prominent medical school in which people come from afar to make sure they can attend the medical school for their training as doctors. In particular, the school specialized in ophthalmology, the healing of the eyes. Also notable with Laodicea is about 35 years before this letter was written, it was destroyed by an earthquake. But because of it being a great city of wealth, it was able to rebuild itself. Another interesting item is the fact that local farmers in Laodicea, they developed a special breed of black sheep, whose wool then from the sheep was highly sought after. It was very fine quality, and people would just go after that particular type of wool for their clothing. So that's some things that's interesting about Laodicea. We could go on, but that's some things that's worthy to know. But of all the things that we could ever talk about with Laodicea is the finale of it. Because of all the things about Laodicea, there's one feature pertaining to the city that Christ calls upon in these verses. And that's the fact of its water supply. It relates to the fact that it received the water as lukewarm. And Laodicea depended upon its water from two sources. One from the north and one from the southeast. I put a map there for you to be able to see where they're getting the water from. You see a few miles north of Laodicea is a city called Hierapolis. Hierapolis would boast of these hot, bubbly springs that would be within the city. And they would take then that hot, bubbly water, almost like a spa, if you will, in nature, and they would transport that water from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. And when you use these things called aqueducts, now, I put a couple of pictures in there, too, as you see what an aqueduct looks like. And it's just, it's maybe not the best pictures. And all the time I've ever studied Revelation, I kept thinking about these aqueducts that's mentioned about how they transport this water. And I could never visualize it, really. Until finally, Sheila and I visited Israel in 2016, and we seen firsthand these aqueducts. So you see an aqueduct tower that remains of what we actually seen over there. But you also see the aqueduct itself, which you're not used to anymore, about how they transport the water from Hierapolis to Laodicea. But the thing about the fact that it was transported to aqueducts that we need to make sure we recognize is this. By the time that hot, bubbly water, like the temperature of a spa that you may be in and enjoy, by the time it made its way all the way from Hierapolis down to Laodicea, it was no longer hot anymore. It would arrive in Laodicea as lukewarm. Now, the same situation applied to its cold water supply. To the southeast of Laodicea was the town of Colossae. Colossae then had this splendid supply of water flowing down from the high mountains, almost like this fast flowing, chilly waters of almost alpine quality, and it was just great. And they would use then the aqueducts that we recognize here, very similarly to what happened to Hierapolis, to also transport that water from Colossae into Laodicea. But the same thing began to apply again. By the time they took that cold, cooling water that was great to drink, 
into the aqueducts and traveled all the way to Laodicea, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. So here we find then that Christ calls upon the church, recognizing his water that receives from Hierapolis or from Colossae. He also knows of their desire to be independent, the fact that they had this great earthquake and wouldn't call upon anybody to rebuild. They're just wealth itself did it by themselves. Their spiritual blindness, even though they have a school of ophthalmology, all led then to the harshest condemnation for this congregation. And Christ reserves his severest, harshest, most critical condemnation for this congregation, for this church, failing to find anything in their witness worth commending. He finds nothing notable about them. Now, having said that, maybe we should also recognize here before we release the central theme of this message today, an additional notation is what Laodicea, the city's name, actually means. The name Laodicea means judgment of the people, which maybe is appropriate because if they don't change their ways and change their ways pretty quick, then judgment shall be upon them. Yet Christ reserves his harshest judgment for them, and he certainly will have wrath to come upon them because of their lukewarm, non-committal attitude and behavior. So all that then leads to our central theme for the message today, which is this, that Christ does not favor a lukewarm church, or for that matter, lukewarm people. He does not favor lukewarmness. By the text revealed, he'd rather be hot. We'd all should be hot for Christ. But he actually said, I'd rather be cold than lukewarm which is remarkable. So this church receives the harshest condemnation of any of the seven churches. In fact, they got no commendation. No commendation at all for the church and for the people led to see it. And maybe they're the only church that received no commendation, if I dare say. Now you may be hearing that and you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. We did do the series, and you did mention... Sardis, which you pronounce as a dead church. So the dead church, I don't remember the dead church receiving any commendation as well. Well, yeah, maybe technically that was the dead church, and one could argue the church of Sardis did not receive a commendation, at least in comparison to other churches. We found many different commendations given to the churches like at Smyrna and Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and certainly at Philadelphia. And they always lead into the accommodation. We can see it easily because it says, I know your works. And maybe, yes, artists didn't have that as we find in other churches. But then again, if we want to compare Sardis, the dead church, and Laodicea, the lukewarm church, there may be one thing we can find about Sardis that maybe would introduce a little bit of accommodation. And it's found in, in chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 where it says, as he writes to Sardis, you have a, still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, maybe it's a stretch, okay? But if any commendation is given to the church of Sardis, then it's the fact that they've got a worthy remnant. For he says you, they are worthy. So it might be a stretch, 
But accommodation could be found perhaps in Sardis, the dead church, for those who are described as worthy. But in Laodicea, there's no one described as worthy. There's no worthy remnant. I mean, look back and look at the text in verses 14 through 16. A familiar address. We, we see every church has an address, and every church has had a unique address. And here, once again, we find in verse 14 a very unique address to the church in Laodicea. Right? The words of the, the Amen. Christ describes himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness of beginning of God's creation, which he's all that. He is indeed the one faithful and true, the beginning of all creation. That's absolutely, positively Christ. But after the address in verse 14, as you get in verses 15 and 16, there's no mention of a worthy remnant. Notice how Christ leaps immediately into condemnation. He says, I know your works. Okay, there's the words that makes us think that something's about to happen to commend him, but he doesn't give them any commendation. All condemn. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would rather that you be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Notice there, there's no mention of a worthy remnant. Just pure and simple disgust of the people, the church, the city of Laodicea. I say disgust because I don't know any other word to use. I mean, see how Christ desires to spit. The English Standard Version says to spit them out of his mouth. The King James, if you like the King James, it says he desired to spew them out of his mouth. Now, I think of spewing something out of my mouth, I'm thinking of vomit. Okay, so he, he desires to vomit them from his mouth. The disgusting taste of the Laodiceans. The spit, vomit, spew them from his mouth, all because of their noncommittal, egotistical, narcissistic, conceited, self-loving attitude and behavior. Be sure to recognize the language. It's not sugar-coated. He desires to spit, to spew, to vomit which suggests the intensity of his dislike for the middle-of-the-road commitment that they behave, that they display. Again, the point of the message comes clear. Christ does not favor a lukewarm church, and for that matter, does not favor lukewarm people. How could you say it any other way? To express a desire to spew or vomit strongly suggests this truth. He does not favor that. To maybe make this evident, I've really tried to think this morning of an illustration pertaining to vomiting. But I thought maybe that'd be overdoing it. Maybe no one here likes to vomit, right? No one likes to spew anything from their mouth. So I didn't think of a really good illustration to illustrate the vomiting that he desires to have when he's thinking about this lay of the sea. But during our Sunday school time with our group that we have here in, in this classroom with middle school kids, we actually thought of something else. Micah actually helped me because he said, you know, if you take, like, if you go to McDonald's and you put in the fry pan and you got this big fryer there, they put the french fries in the fry pan and put them down there, it begins to bubble up and begins to actually cook these fries, the world's best fries for McDonald's, right? So you get those fries, 
But he said, if you didn't put the fries in there, but put ice cubes in it and put that in the fryer, what happens? It spews things everywhere. Grease goes everywhere. So there's the illustration for us. Rather than vomiting, you get the picture by the fact that everything is spewed from the fryer. Christ desires to spew them, to spit them, to vomit them from his mouth. Amazing. That's how much he dislikes their behavior. Now, as I use that then for illustration and bring that to your point, make sure you see that, maybe you're saying, okay, all right, okay, all right. But can they really be that bad? I mean, is there not someone that Christ can identify with at Laodicea? Well, maybe so go back to the text and leave to verse 19. Maybe it's a verse that does seem to have a bit of encouragement. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. As it comes to those living in around Laodicea, verse 19 kind of does indicate that there might be some who are living right. Note the phrase again, those whom I love. Those whom I love kind of sounds encouraging, doesn't it? Those whom I love. Those whom I love, I rebuke, I discipline. I mean, Scripture tells us that Christ loves us and we receive discipline. I mean, after all, it's mentioned in Proverbs 3, verse 12, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, that Christ, God rebukes, chastens those he loves. So recognizing that, the question now comes up is, could this be the worthy remnant that we're searching for? Maybe is, is anyone at Laodicea that is worthy? Is this suggesting that there is someone? Those whom I love? Well, maybe not exactly. A closer examination of what Christ means is rather interesting. Because while it could be referring to a group of genuine believers, which may be used loosely with the Church of Laodicea, we need to recognize at the very minimum that this church, these people, have succumbed to the pressure of worldliness and secularism. And possibly then it could be referring to a group of people that never knew Christ, I mean, they thought they did, but they never really knew him, which would introduce the fact that they are lukewarm at best. And it's not surprising to suggest that Christ finds people who believe somehow that they are his, but are truly not. In Matthew chapter 7, he tells us of this day. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I, Christ, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does that mean by introducing Matthew chapter 7 to the equation here with Laodicea about whether there's someone worthy or not? It means that we maybe shouldn't be so quick to interpret the words in verse 19 as maybe an introduction of people who are worthy at Laodicea. I mean, to do so does not fit with the remainder of the letter 
in which the church receives the most harshest condemnation given to any other church. And even further, when you place verse 19 back into the context of the entire situation revolving in, in Laodicea, it reveals there is never any evidence of these people's faith, at least not by their deeds or their fruit. In verse 17, I mean, Jesus knows exactly the situation. He knows these people. He knows all of us. He knows exactly what we pretend to be and what we are, as he does them. In verse 17, he says, I, you say I am rich. I have prospered. You say I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched. You are pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. When I hear those words, it reminds me of the rich young ruler. In Matthew chapter 19, you may know the situation, but the text of Matthew 19, starting verse 16, tells us that there was this rich young ruler who asked Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? That's in verse 16. But verse 17, you see, he says, hey, hey, I'm going to give you what you need to know. Verse 18, he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. I mean, he's basically saying you must keep the commandments. Verse, nine, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But then verse 22 reveals that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Pretty great possessions. So I connect the rich young ruler really with the Laodiceans because in many ways they're just like this rich young ruler priding themselves on an affluent city of great wealth, needing absolutely nothing. When you think you don't need anything in your life, it can lead you to position where you're lukewarm. And you then receive, like the Church of Laodicea, a great harsh condemnation, the harshest of any of the seven churches. Michael Wilcox states this, what more terrible condemnation could there be of a church's condition than the Lord would prefer even a cold Christianity to the sort he actually finds in her at Laodicea? It's amazing, as Wilcock has stated, the fact that Christ would prefer a cold Christianity to one of what's happening to the people in Laodicea. Again, proves the central message. That Christ does not favor a lukewarm church, and for that matter, does not favor lukewarm people. I mean, yeah, Christ died for them. We must acknowledge Christ died for all men, women, and children. But he tells them he'd rather be hot or cold, not lukewarm. As 15, verse 15 rightfully tells us. I mean, how could else we understand that the mere presence makes Christ want to vomit, spew, spit them from his mouth? He would clearly, rather to be hot or to be cold, he clearly would have them be anything, anything but lukewarm. He would clearly want the church to be anything for Christianity, even today still, to be anything but lukewarm. That's what he's telling the church of Laodicea in the verses we read, and he's still telling the church that today. And it's very troubling to find and see 
the fact that Laodicea is best representing the modern day church. Laodicea best represents the modern day church. It, it's almost got to the point right now where we find what Paul had written to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It just seems to be happening. He said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to truth and wander into myths. The modern day church movement is half-hearted at best. It's lukewarm. John Stott concurs. He writes, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. I borrow those words of John Stott because I couldn't have said it any better. In the church, in general terms today, is on life support. It's very anemic. And it desperately needs a blood transfusion. The only problem is, the first problem is the fact we must recognize that. But the second problem is the fact there's very few churches today that are actually Bible-preaching churches that can pump that blood of life back into the churches it needs. Many churches can be described as lukewarm, half-hearted, maybe even non-committed, maybe the word, dare we say, pathetic in their form of worship. But we will not be. We will not become lukewarm. We will continue each and every week. We come here together. We will continue to preach Christ crucified. It may be less popular among the masses out there, but we'll continue to stay the course. What, what John wrote in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, for Christ come to the world, not to say, not to condemn, but to save, is absolutely positively true. He gave us his one and only son. And what we've learned in Scripture will continue to teach and preach, and that may make us different than all the others, but that's what's going to happen here. We're going to preach Christ crucified. Because we're not going to become lukewarm. We're going to become hot on fire for Christ. So in the time remaining, let's identify five things that we can do to avoid becoming Laodiceans. So we continue to be hot for Christ, not cold, certainly not lukewarm. And the first is this. Get right or get left and get hot. It's just really that simple. Verse 19 earlier we come back to now. He says, to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. As of the latter part of the verse, particularly the word zealous, J. Vernon McGee says the word zealous means to be hot. This is Christ's last message to the church. He says, be zealous, be hot, get on fire for God. Be hot, 
get on fire for God? Let me ask you, are you on fire for God? Is the flame still burning or is it nearly extinguished? If it's starting to burn more dimly than when you were first saved, then we got to reignite it. You can reignite it by getting involved. You can pray, you can read Bible, you can go to study. You got to do something to reignite it. Don't let it burn out. Don't become cold. Don't become lukewarm. Get right or get left and get hot. It's just that simple. And the second thing then to avoid becoming like Laodicea is to remember it's never about you. It always has been and it always will be all about Jesus Christ. He and he alone deserves all the glory. It's never about us. I mean, think about it. What have we done to receive any glory? I mean, I stand before you, and this is the best that I can look. I mean, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, right? But this is the best I can be. And you've got to accept me as I am, but it's never been about me. It's all about Christ. I've done nothing for the glory. It's all about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. And Christ died for you. Max Lucado said, it's time to understand that life revolves around God, not ourselves. Maybe that will preach. It's time to understand that life revolves around God, not ourselves. So remember, it's never about you. Thirdly, humble yourself. Pride comes before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. The Laodiceans were all about themselves. We kind of get the picture. That's what it was about the city and the church. They have this great pride. They got these black sheep. They're like no others that provide all the wool. And they have all this great money. They have this great prominent medical school. They're prideful, egotistical, so much so they would not have anybody to help them rebuild with that earthquake. They did it themselves. So it tells us to avoid becoming like Laodiceans, we must be humble ourselves and remain humble in spirit. And fourth, remember it's never about material wealth. Spiritual richness comes from the Lord himself. The Laodiceans were deluded and deceived, thinking they were a real treasure to God. Wealthy, needing nothing, as verse 17 can kind of emphasize for us, that they, they think they need nothing. They think they have everything, they need nothing. They think they got it all. They're really spiritual phonies. I mean, look at the words in verse 17 that describe them. He says, you are wretched, you're pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. Yeah, they had all this great wealth, but what else did they have? Yeah, ultimately, money is worthless. Our Lord conveyed a command in Matthew chapter 6. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I mean, may not any of us think of ourselves as rich, but with the Lord Jesus Christ Give all the riches you'll ever need. And then finally and fifthly then, to avoid becoming like the Sia, we must live a godly, fruitful Christian life. 
just live that kind of life, bringing glory to Him. I mean, what is to gain from life by living like Laodiceans? I mean, simply put, there'll be no room for people who have this lackadaisical, egotistical, narcissistic approach to our Lord. I mean, we're here to honor Him, to glorify Him, and, and to bear fruit, drawing people to Him by the fruit that we have. Paul wrote to Galatians in, in chapter 5, he said, the works of the flesh are evident. There's sexual immorality, there's impurity, there's sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. He goes on and on and on. Verse 21, he says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit that we certainly should have, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against their things, there is no such law. We should display the fruit to people all around us, bringing glory and honor to God and drawing people close to Him through what we do, their actions, words, and thoughts. Live a godly, fruitful life. The theme of the message is clearly that Christ does not favor lukewarm church or lukewarm people. And we should never position ourselves to ever be lukewarm, but to remain hot. So to prevent becoming like Laodiceans, there's five things we outline we do. It's quick, it's easy. Get right, get left. Remember, it's never about you. Humble yourself. It's not about material wealth. It's not about richness. We only get riches from the Lord himself. And to live a godly, fruitful life. Five simple, easy things to make sure that we are of hot for Christ. Not cold. Certainly not lukewarm. These things are all obtainable right now today. As somehow you have begun to approach your relationship with Christ in a manner that is a bit lax. Somehow maybe you've taken a step back. Then the message today we have from Laodicea, the final church, is the fact that Christ is calling you back. Hearing the message today of being here is calling you back in relationship with Christ, where he wants you to be, to be hot for him, not cold, not lukewarm. Let us all become hot for Christ. Father, Lord, thank you for for all your goodness you give to us, Lord. We pray today, Lord, for all of ourselves, for our church, for people we know, for people we love, to get on fire. Lord, I'm not there suggesting any of us here today are not on fire for you, but it's a good reminder, nonetheless, that we need to be on fire. We need to be hot for you, that Lord, we don't need to approach our relationship with you as, as a complacency and, and something that we, we need to just make sure that we, we honor, that we we appreciate that we are thankful for because you took that place for us you died for each of us Lord. let's remember that or call upon us today enter our heart stir in there greatly let's return to that right relationship with you put you first let us put you first Lord in our life not just today 
but in every day we shall ever have. Let us honor and glorify you and bear fruit for your witness. Thank you, Lord, for how this message today reminds us of that. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.